The sermon text for today is found in Luke chapter 14. Originally, I had intended to read verse 1 and then 7 through 14, but then I thought, why not just read all of that, 1 through 14? It's not that much longer, and it's all part of the same story. So I'm going to read Luke, 1, uh, Luke 14, 1 through 14. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. Anybody know what dropsy is? What is it, by the way? Yeah, it's, it's swelling beneath the skin, right? Yeah, fluid. We call it edema, maybe, in, in present language. Suffering from swelling. Okay. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man... He healed him and sent him away. Then he asked them, If one of you has a son or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? And they had nothing to say. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this man your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he will say to you, Friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord Jesus Christ, we give you thanks for this word that you spoke. These words that you spoke so many years ago. Help us to humble ourselves before you. And to know your presence in this place. And to know your presence in these words. Use them to transform our lives. And use these minutes now as I guide our reflections on it, on this passage, to 
to accomplish whatever you will in the lives of all of those who have gathered here today. We give you thanks for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. I had a conversation this past week with a friend of mine, um, a friend of mine who is an atheist, and a very serious one at that. He grew up as a Christian in a rather fundamentalist kind of home, and over a long period of time he has wandered away from that and has found peace in believing that God does not exist. Um, he is very rational and very extremely rational and very scientifically minded and um, has very firm beliefs. But uh, when I had this conversation with him, he wanted to know where I come from. He wanted to, he I mean, he knows where I come from. We've been friends for a while and he knows what I do for a living and he knows this, this pastoring gig and all this. He gets all of that. He, he wanted to learn from me something of where I am now and, and why I believe what I believe. He asked me questions like, uh, who do you say that God is? How do you know that God exists? A really important question for him. What is your methodology of knowing, what, uh, of believing what you say you believe? How, how do you go about knowing what you know? These are really serious questions. And I struggled to answer them. Because the languages that we speak are very different languages. He asked me, why is Jesus so important? How do you know that Jesus is God? And the answer that I gave him, which comes from a very different language than what he speaks, is uh, the language of incarnation. It's the language of Jesus moving into our neighborhood. Uh, God became flesh. The, the Son of God moved into our world, put on human flesh. Jesus is fully God and fully human. How do I know? Why is Jesus so important? How do I know that Jesus is God? Because of this tradition that we have that Jesus is fully human and fully divine. And I can't make sense of it. I can't explain it away. And my friend said, that's just a contradiction in terms. This can't possibly happen. And I said, yeah, you're right. It, it is a contradiction. It's a logical thing that cannot make any sense at all. But it's one of the most fundamental truth claims of the Christian tradition. It's not just that Jesus has these two sides to his life, the, the human side and the and the uh, divine side it reminds me of, of Dwight Schrute from The Office. Um, it's not like he's halvesies. No, he's holesies. It's all that's, that's never mind. It's a joke in my mind and in Tara's, but not in anybody else's. It's okay. Um, it's, Jesus is not half human and half divine. He's whole human and whole divine. But it's beyond that. It's not just, I can't even look at them right now. It's not just that he's got these two sides. It's about the shape of Jesus' life. This incarnation thing is about the shape of how Jesus experienced life as a human. And by shape, I mean the downward descent and then the upward ascent. And I cannot put it any better than how Paul put it in Philippians chapter 2 
in a passage that we should all be familiar with, and if not, we should become more and more familiar with it. Uh, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, Paul writes, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And now comes the descent and ascent. Who, Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, and now begins the upward ascent, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Descent and ascent. That's the shape of Jesus' incarnation. Fully human and fully divine, Jesus leaves the divinity behind somehow, sort of, and becomes fully human somehow, sort of, and, and then after, the, after his, the crucifixion and resurrection, ascends back up into heaven, whatever that means. It's a, a picture of downward movement and then upward movement. That's what the incarnation is about. And that's what Jesus modeled in his life. He practiced what he preached. He preached that people should humble themselves. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. There's that downward and upward motion again. He's always talking about this. And he practiced what he preached. He embodied what he said was important. This shape of life is difficult for us because our human ego has the need to be right or to be honored or to be respected or recognized. People present these needs in different kinds of ways. Some people display these needs, the need to be respected or honored or be shown to be right uh, very prominently. Uh, other people are a little bit more on the negative side of things. They, they emphasize the negative things in their lives as a way of attracting attention from others. We all have this human ego need. But Jesus challenges us to turn that human ego upside down and to live a different way. And in this Gospel reading from Luke 14, in four different movements... Jesus challenges us to listen to him as he turns our normal need, our human need, for self-exaltation upside down. Movement one. He heals a man with dropsy or edema, the swelling, the fluid beneath the skin. And of course, it's a challenge to the Pharisees, the good religious people who are there. Is the law, following the law, more important than caring for this individual? It's a Sabbath day. You're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath. But uh, here, should I heal this man or not? And he heals him. That's great. But don't miss the crucial detail. In the healing of the man, Jesus takes hold of the man and heals him. Now, Jesus is perfectly capable of healing people from a distance. 
without touching them, sometimes without even seeing them, Jesus can heal people from afar. But here he takes hold of the man on a Sabbath. A man who is ritually unclean because he's sick. He's got this dropsy, this edema. Jesus transfers the uncleanness to himself. He is not afraid to touch the man, even on the Sabbath, even in the house of a Pharisee. He is not afraid to cross that boundary, to touch that man and bring him life. Jesus does not have that concern for potential religious impurity. His primary concern is to bring fullness of life to the man who was suffering, to the man who was a social outcast because of his illness. Movement two. It's a question that Jesus asks. It's a single verse in this text, but it stands alone kind of as its own idea. It's just one sentence. It's a Sabbath day and you're not supposed to work, right? So what if you have a son or an ox or something that falls into a well on a Sabbath? You're going to pull that person or that animal out, aren't you? It's a rhetorical question. Of course you're going to do that. Of course you're going to do what is necessary in an emergency. But this demonstrates Jesus' point. Our need to be right, our need to be good is not fulfilled by slavishly obeying religious laws. There is something more important than strict obedience to those commands. Oh, it's the Sabbath, I can't, I can't go to work. There's something more important than that. This person or this being is in danger, I need to, I need to provide rescue. Movement three. Jesus speaks to the dinner guests, the people who have been invited to this prominent Pharisee's home for the meal. He notices how they're picking the seats of, of, uh, of high value, the seats that are close to the host or high importance. And he says to them, don't jostle for positions of prominence. Don't seek attention or recognition. Be content with where you are. In fact, he says, something stronger than that, Don't just be content with where you are. Humble yourself. There's the downward motion. Pick the lower seat. Pick the seat that's at the end of the table. Pick the seat that's at the kids' table in the other room at the Christmas family meal, you know? Don't don't pick the seat next to grandma. Pick the seat way off in the other where you have to take the mashed potatoes that are half cold because they've been sitting. Pick that seat. Humble yourself without begrudging anyone above you. This is exactly what Jesus did in the incarnation. Jesus humbled himself without begrudging any human being that would be somehow above him, a king or a ruler or a Pharisee or anybody else. Jesus became the lowest among us. The shape of the life of a follower of Jesus should be the same kind of shape in a downward direction, sacrificing ourselves, humbling ourselves, getting the ego out of the way, and learning to listen deeply to those around you. Learning to care for their needs, even as you care for your own. Because those who humble themselves, Jesus says, will be 
exalted. Oh, so there's a turnaround coming sometime. We give ourselves up now and we'll be rewarded in the future? Sort of, yeah. Movement four. Jesus now speaks to the host of the dinner. The, the Pharisee that has invited him and so many others to the table. And he says that the banquet should not be given to those who can repay you uh, or who can return the favor to you by inviting you to their glamorous table sometime. But the banquet should be given away freely to those who cannot repay. To those who cannot be indebted to you for your generosity. Your resources should be directed toward the outcasts, toward the sick, toward the overlooked, toward the disinherited. They cannot repay. But you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Ah, so that's when the repayment will take place, at the resurrection of the righteous. That sounds a long way off. But again, Jesus embodies this and models this for us. Jesus gives himself away freely to those who cannot repay him, which is all of us. Jesus gives us his love and his mercy, his grace, his forgiveness, his healing power, even his eternal life. And he sets the example for how we should live, reaching out with love to those on the margins. Jesus influences us to live selfless lives, to find our morality in giving ourselves away. When we do this, when we live as Jesus lived, we influence others to live the same way as well. Those whom we sacrifice ourselves for may very well be inspired to give themselves away for someone else. And those who observe us serving might be, uh, might be so inspired to sacrifice themselves as well. The, the downward shape of our lives is designed to inspire others to join us on this downward self-sacrificing journey. Yes, there is an uphill coming. There is a return. There is an ascent coming. But Jesus says that comes at the resurrection of the righteous. Don't worry about it now. There's still further down to go. There's still more humbling to do. There's still more sacrificing to, to make. Our repayment at the resurrection of the righteous is not simply going to be our new and eternal life, but a bigger group of people who have followed Jesus by joining us on this path. People who were inspired by our witness, just like we have been inspired by those who have run the race before us, just as they were inspired by those who came before them, and so on and so on, all the way back to those who were inspired by Jesus in the first place. The shape of our life in Christ is just like the shape of Christ's life. Descent and ascent. And we are still on that downward giving away of ourselves slope, as long as we're living. That's a tough pill to swallow because we are not wired to abandon our egos. We are not wired to pursue shame or to serve the least in our society. Few people really are. And few people who heard Jesus call them to 
to lives of humility were wired that way too. In fact, they said nothing in response. Jesus said to them, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? They remained silent. Jesus asked them, If something falls into a well, aren't you going to pull it out, even if it's a Sabbath day? And they had nothing to say. Sometimes it is important and helpful for us to be silent in the midst of God's word. To listen deeply. To empty ourselves of what we want to be true. And to take in the words of Jesus for the sake of the least among us. I finished reading a book this week called When God is Silent. It's a small book, short book, uh, by Barbara Brown Taylor. It's a series of lectures that got transcribed more or less into a book format. When God is Silent. She gave these lectures back in 1998. Uh, 1999 is when the book was published. And she said then, 20 years ago, words that are still incredibly meaningful and true today, and perhaps even more so. I think this book, by the way, should be mandatory reading for anyone who would be a preacher. The context of what she is talking about is that uh, she says, we live in a time of oversaturation with words and information and images. She wrote that in 1999, (laughs) before we had all of these devices on us that continue to oversaturate us with words and information and images. She says that anyone who would dare to preach and... I think by extension, anyone who would dare to follow Christ needs a great deal of silence in their lives. We need to distance ourselves from our egos, set our assumptions and our our opinions to the side, give ourselves time and space to soak in the words of Jesus and allow scripture to form us and shape us in the image of Christ. There is far too much noise in our world, and I recognize that by speaking for these past 25 minutes or so, I've just contributed more to it. (laughs) There's far too much words for us to take in. We need a lot more silence in our lives so that we can recognize the presence of God in our midst. So how do we do this? This is the challenge that I give for you this week. Silent amidst God's word. And uh, one way to do it is just to take the very next passage in Luke 14. Uh, Luke 14 from 15 through uh, maybe 24 or even through the end of the chapter. Both, uh, both sets of stories are, are good for this kind of a practice. After all of the silence in this story that we've read today... Uh, after the people aren't able to come up with anything to say to Jesus, the very next thing after where we left off at verse 14, one person gets up and says, I've got an idea. I, I think I know what you're saying. Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Right? It's about a wedding banquet and you're inviting us to the table. Kingdom of God, it's good stuff. And Jesus responds, with a teaching that suggests it's a lot harder to follow him than it sounds. So my challenge for you this week, 
is to read the rest of Luke 14. And give yourself a lot of space, time and space, for silent reflection. Allow the text to read you, even as you read the text. And when you think that you have reflected enough on the chapter, then sit in silence for five more minutes before you get up, and then read it one more time. As Jesus says at the end of the chapter, anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. So let it be your goal to listen to God more than you speak to God this week. And perhaps the rest of Luke 14 might be a good guide for you along that journey.